Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A job is about a lot more than a paycheck. If you work hard and take responsibility, you can get ahead in America. In 1940, the United States formalized a 40-hour work week. It's been 80 years, and not much has changed since. A 9-to-5 Monday through Friday work week is still the standard. Just ask Dolly Parton. Working 9-to-5, what a way to make living, getting by. But let's be honest, most of us work a lot more than that. We're all working overtime. We've picked up side hustles and gig work. Forget about working for the weekend. A lot of us are working through the weekend. But what if we didn't have to work so damn hard? What would the world look like if we only worked four days a week? I'm Chris Eliza, and you're listening to Downside Up, a podcast from CNN that looks for answers to some of the world's big what-if questions. Today's thought experiment may actually be within our grasp, we're looking at what the world would look like if we only worked four days a week. Some companies and even some countries have already started piloting four-day work weeks. We'll learn a little bit today about how those programs are going and whether they actually make an impact on our overall culture of work. So join me as we turn our workplaces downside up. Many Americans have long defined themselves by their work ethic. We've got hardworking roots here in the U.S., If you go all the way back to when the Europeans first settled in New England, the Massachusetts Bay Colony actually had a 10-hour minimum workday. And for more than a century, we've debated how many hours we should all be working every week. As early as 1817, labor unions were advocating for shorter work weeks. Well, it really, like, there wasn't one day where people were like, okay, we're going to (laughs) go to just 40 hours. It was the result of a series of reforms that were really the work of labor reformers advocating for a shorter work week. That's Anne Helen Peterson, author of Out of Office, a book about America's work culture in the 21st century and host of the podcast Work Appropriate. She studied the evolution of the American work week. Used to be much more standard, especially during the 19th century, early 20th century, to work on Saturdays. And the only reason, honestly, that you get any time off on Sunday is because religious maxims that say that it's the Sabbath. There was an idea that if you were able to work, then you should be working, right? Like if you could use electricity to be able to work in the factory longer, then as long as the human body could work in that factory, you should be working in that factory with little understanding of how that wears out the body. And so laborers came together and said like, no, this is too much for what any human body should do, right? We should have eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, for sleep, and eight hours for what you will, was famous labor rallying cry. Back then, people were regularly working 80 to 100-hour weeks. In 1866, Congress actually considered an eight-hour workday bill, but it didn't pass. 
And then in 1926, Henry Ford actually implemented a 40-hour workweek in his factories because he thought that was the optimal work period for his employees. Twelve years after that, in 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which required employers to pay overtime to hourly employees who work more than 44 hours a week. By the time that law was implemented in 1940, it had been reduced to a 40-hour week. Ever since then, it's been the standard for most people, but not for everyone. I mean, (laughs) the way the labor reforms have always worked has been the, the workers that officials don't want to treat as valuable workers were exempted from that. So that was migrant workers oftentimes until labor reforms within the agricultural market but also people who worked as domestics in any capacity. So people who worked as nannies, but also as housekeepers. And a lot of that was straight up racist, right? Like it was part of the deal of like, okay, we'll have labor protections for some people, but we can't consider people who work primarily in the home to be workers who are worthy, deserving of these protections. Because if we did, then we'd have to pay all of these specifically black people, but also people of color, lower class workers, and women, particularly, the same wage as we'd pay someone who's working in a factory. I mean, all of this is so tied up in in race and and gender and all of that history. So as much as these labor reforms did protect a lot of workers and ensure a 40-hour work week and protections that went with it, that did not apply to everyone. So again, totally arbitrary. Like there's nothing that says we should work 40 hours a week. Like that is what we work as people in the world today. Like a lot of the reforms from the early 20th century, labor protections often did not extend to people of color. Angela Garbus is the author of Essential Labor, a book that challenges our assumptions about work, care, and domestic life. Thinking about the New Deal, one of the things that came out of that was putting people to work, right? And there were protections that were put in place, a guaranteed sort of like family wage. That was all built around a very traditional nuclear family structure, a man who goes to work a wife who stays home, and a couple of kids. That was a good idea, but imperfect and sort of flawed in very, very American ways. Basically, Southern lawmakers didn't think that Black people deserved that guaranteed wage that white people had. And so the people who were exempted from that living wage were domestic workers who were predominantly Black women and agricultural workers at Pickers who were um, predominantly Black men. So... Our definitions of work and our ideas of that have always been very certain realm of people, and they've excluded many people for a long time. And you see that disparity carry all the way through to today. The median wage of any worker in any industry in America is uh, $20 an hour, which is barely enough to get by. But we see that dramatically drop down. When it comes to domestic workers, they make a median of $12 an hour. And actually, the lowest paid uh, worker, median wage-wise, is a nanny who makes $11.60 an hour. And childcare workers and anyone who's taken care of a child knows, like, it's not easy. It's very exhausting, and it will drive many people to the brink of madness. Like, care work, taking care of a physical body, like, seeing an infant through that vulnerability, like, that's as real as it gets. And we don't value that. And it's very gendered. It's typically the profession of women. Angela believes that we should rethink what we consider valuable work in America because childcare workers and teachers make all other work possible. But they are some of the workers that slip through the cracks of American workforce protections. Childcare workers 
the majority of whom are women of color, and many of them are mothers themselves, they are three times as likely to live in poverty than any other worker in America. And so we're entrusting, you know, our future, the things, the people we say are most precious to us, our children, to these workers, and we can't pay them a living wage. That's very shameful. And Helen Peterson worked as a nanny right out of college. And she points out that people in that position are working longer hours so that white-collar workers can maintain their 9-to-5 lifestyle. When I was a nanny, I never worked a 9-to-5. I would show up at 8, usually stay until around 6. That was the expectation because I was working for Microsoft employees. I needed to get there so that they could commute into the office and needed to be there so they could commute home. So I worked more than a 40-hour work week. But let's be honest. These days, very few people actually work just a 40-hour work week, even salaried executives. In the office, the hustle and grind culture leads to people working beyond their 40 hours, even when overtime laws don't apply to them. Most salaried employees, particularly people who are higher-level office workers, are working far more than 40 hours, right? Because they are not paid overtime and oftentimes Working those incredibly long hours is a sign of dedication, devotion, you know, a sign that you should be promoted. And I think as much as people talk about the sanctity of the 40 work week, they don't talk about the fact that we've already violated it. And if you think about the campuses built by some of the big Silicon Valley tech companies in the early part of the 21st century, American businesses had built the culture where employees were always expected to be working. The office had gyms, cafeterias, ping pong tables, even barbershops. Everything you could need so you'd never have to leave. People are like, well, I work all the time because there's like, I don't have anything. I don't have any other community that I'm bound to. Like, I don't have these other responsibilities. I don't have strong friendships even outside of my family. But part of the reason that they don't have those things, they don't have any hobbies, they don't know what they like, is because they have worked all the time. And I don't think that this is like a personal failure. It's much more structural. But when people say like, if I'm not going to the office, where am I going to make friends? Where am I going to be around other people? You know, the workplace is not responsible for our loneliness problem. But the COVID-19 pandemic abruptly made many of us rethink our relationships with work. Suddenly, it was unsafe for most people to commute to the office, and many workers, especially office workers, learned that they could do their jobs from home. And as the world opened back up and employers asked their employees to come back into the office, they very quickly learned that people weren't going to do that. No one is going to go back into the office full time, except if forced. You believe that? Interesting. 100%. You can either try to figure out flex arrangements now, or you can battle your employees for the next five to 10 years and then pay a consultant a lot of money to help you figure out what you should have started figuring out five to 10 years ago, right? And it's not that that means everyone needs to be fully remote. I think oftentimes this conversation becomes very polarized or binary in terms of like, everyone should always be in the office or everyone should always be in the home. Most people want a compromise that's somewhere in between there. Like, I want to be in the office a couple days a week because I like getting out of my home. And I also understand that there's certain things that I do in my job that are a lot easier if we have co-presence for some reason, if that's drafting a document, having a brainstorm, whatever it is. People understand and acknowledge that, but they also don't want to be forced to go back into the office for two days a week and have that not be a time when their coworkers are there. And so they're just going back into this ghost office and it feels totally arbitrary to be like, answering emails, 
from an office instead of answering emails from the comfort of your own home. And I think that there's real health involved in having the co-presence in the office and also in getting out of one's house and being around other people. But there is no reason for it to be as, you know, guided by specific commute times and like it has to be Monday through Friday. People can figure out where work fits into their lives with some boundaries, right? And as people are rethinking how and where they should be able to work, many are also changing the way they think about when they should work. As artificial intelligence and automation increasingly enter the workplace, workers are becoming more efficient, able to get as much work done in four days as they used to get done in five. In fact, way back in 1956, then-Vice President Richard Nixon expressed his belief that automation would lead to a four-day work week. He said it would lead to a fuller family life for all Americans. Well, it's been 60 years, and that's still not the standard. But after the break, we'll take a hard look at American work culture and the problems that a 32-hour work week can and can't fix. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Downside Up. I'm Chris Saliza, and today we're looking at American work culture and how our lives might be different if everyone had a four-day work week. It's definitely an idea that's pretty popular with employees. A LinkedIn survey conducted this year found that 54% of U.S. workers chose a four-day work week as one of the top benefits they'd like offered by their employer. But employers have been reluctant to buy into a shorter week. Charlotte Lockhart is trying to change that. She's the founder of the nonprofit Four Day Week Global. She's also a New Zealander. And I started our conversation by asking whether she thought Americans would buy into this idea when work ethic feels like a core part of the American dream. Well, it depends on what you define as being work and what is the dream. Through history, we have always wanted for our children to have better housing, better education, better food, better health. But in the 21st century, all we're really giving our children is more. And so when people say, well, the young ones these days don't want to work as hard, well, actually good on them because actually what they want is more time because they want to have more time to work on the things that are important to them. And if you want evidence of that, Charlotte points to what Gen Xers and millennials called burnout, but Gen Z calls quiet quitting. So there's the go to work and get paid thing, but then work asks you for more, and this is where quietly quitting has become a conversation. How do we work on our families? How do we work on our health? How do we work on our 
education for ourselves? How do we work within our community? And how do we work on helping us save the planet? And so it's, it's how we define ourselves in terms of our activities. We often describe everything about work as being this thing that we do when we're paid, but actually most of those other things in life actually require work. That echoes the phenomenon that author Anne Helen Peterson described. People spend so much time at work that they have little time to dedicate to anything else. In 2018, before she started her nonprofit, Charlotte was working at an estate planning firm in New Zealand. She started talking with her colleague, Andrew Barnes, about how they could spend less time at work. He'd read some research that said that people were only productive for broadly less than three hours a day. So he was academically interested in what got in the way of people being productive. And so he decided to try that if we gave our people more time in their personal lives, would that mean that they get a lot of that personal life admin distraction out of their day? And we found that that was the success. And that's why we started doing this. So their approach was rooted in research about efficiency. People may be working eight or more hours a day, but they're only productive for three of them. And could you neutralize all that lost time by giving employees an extra day each week to focus on their personal lives? It was only after they implemented this new approach that they saw all the other benefits to working fewer hours. And the results were so successful that Charlotte launched a new four-day week global nonprofit where she now works. But when we started it, we thought, oh, this is quite good for gender balance in the workplace. Oh, look at what we're doing for the environment. Oh my goodness, what are the things that are people doing with their time? They're using it for very life-affirming things. And then, of course, there was all the mental health and all those sort of things. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's look at these one at a time. When it comes to gender balance in the workplace, Charlotte's team found that creating a culture where everyone worked less made it easier for new parents, both moms and dads, to transition back into the office after parental leave or to take time out of their day to walk their kids to school and things like that. As for the environment... The most simple thing is a piece of research came out a little while ago that said that if the four-day week was in the UK, it would be the equivalent of taking every single private car off the road. That's pretty stunning. So let's look at that a little deeper. It makes sense that if you reduce the amount of time people are commuting into the office, that reduces carbon emissions. And if we use our offices less frequently, we also reduce the amount of power needed to keep all those lights on and the air conditioning running, which also reduces our carbon footprint. Now, a lot of that depends on what we'd all actually do with our four-day work week. If you go on a weekend road trip, you may actually be using more gas than you would just sitting in traffic. But another study from the University of Massachusetts concluded that just by reducing the amount of time we work by 10% would reduce our carbon footprint by 14.6%. And Charlotte says it's good business, too. Our recruitment and attracting and retaining great staff became a big thing. And it's the number one reason why employers join our pilot programs is because they have this need to actually keep the staff that they've got and then hire in the great ones. And so there were all these other benefits that came out of it. But at its heart, what we were looking at was how did we improve productivity in the workplace? If you're skeptical, I understand. In America, a lot of businesses have used reduced hours as a way to avoid paying people full-time benefits like health insurance or paid time off. That's driven a lot of people into situations where they have to juggle two or even three jobs. But the companies participating in Charlotte's pilot programs commit to a six-month trial period of 180-100 model, meaning they get 100% of the productivity in 80% of the time 
for 100% of the pay. And their current pilot program covers thousands of employees across financial services, retail, healthcare, and hospitality sectors. Very importantly, we are not about reducing pay. Your contract with your employee is not just buying time. You're buying them doing something with that time, a productive outcome. What businesses do when they join the program, and it doesn't matter whether they're a manufacturer in hospitality, work in healthcare, or work in an office, what they're looking at is how do we define productivity within our business and how can we improve it? And if we keep productivity the same, why would we pay you less? So we very much advocate for not a reduction in pay. Basically, companies don't pay employees just to be in a building for 40 hours a week. They pay them to do something. And if you get all of that done in less time, then your pay should stay the same. And more than 70% of the companies participating in the current four-day week pilot program said they plan to continue with the policy even after the six-month trial period ends. There are thousands of companies that are doing this in the U.S. and around the globe. One of the pieces of information that so many employers say to me is, you know what, it was actually easier than I thought it would be. That's because what we say is, don't try and decide how to fix this from the C-suite. Ask your people how they're going to do their job roles better. There's an idea in business called Parkinson's Law, which basically says that work expands to fill the amount of time dedicated to it. So if you have a major report due in two weeks, it'll take you two weeks to do that report. Or if you have to make 100 widgets in eight hours, you'll make 100 widgets in eight hours. And the companies in Charlotte's program found that by talking with their employees, they could better determine how much time it took to actually complete assigned tasks and then adjust schedules accordingly, making everything more efficient. And she thinks it's time our work policies evolved to keep up with our technology. The question for us is, we've been working a five-day week since the 1930s and certainly sustainably around the world since the 50s and 60s. Why wouldn't we look to change now? It it makes no sense. We've got all this technology that we've brought into our businesses and we have all these ways of measuring productivity and all of these uh, enhancements. And for all the buzz we've heard about the gig economy in recent years, Charlotte thinks that gig culture actually offers a mirage of flexibility. Gig companies, like ride-sharing companies, for example, tell workers they can build their own schedules and choose their own hours. But importantly, They also consider those workers independent contractors, so they're not obligated to pay benefits like health insurance or offer paid time off. So oftentimes, gig workers wind up working more than 40 hours a week with fewer benefits. And the gig economy is a really interesting one, and it's a very American thing. I mean, if we think about what is the gig economy, the gig economy realistically isn't about me having flexibility with my hours. It's my previous employer having flexibility in terms of how they pay me. And so as a society, we're looking for, you know, how do we value people? We have things like superannuation and business and sick days and holiday pays and things like that, because as a society, we have deemed that those are things of value to have for our society. And the gig economy, as much as it has lots of benefits, disintermediates the fact that we were putting in these worker protections in the first place. In other words, Charlotte believes that businesses that rely on gig workers are promising flexibility, but really they're using it as an excuse to get around offering benefits. And Helen Peterson agrees and thinks that's part of an overall erosion of labor protections. I think one thing that we make really difficult in the United States is part-time work. And a lot of that has to do with the desperation for health insurance. 
But like, if you look at Europe, there's a lot of people who work actual part-time jobs. And they do that because their ideal scenario is providing part-time care for their kids or for their elders, right? And they are able to have a sustainable life because there are social safety net things in place that make it so like they're not spending massive amounts of their salary on additional childcare for the times when they are in work. They're not spending massive proportion of their existing salary on healthcare. And so I think, you know, one thing I hear a lot of people talk about, particularly women, but I think there are a lot of fathers and non-binary parents who also feel this way, is if you could open up a way for there to be more part-time work, then (laughs) there wouldn't be such a frantic need to find full-time employment at several jobs and then also cover that by paying people to take care of your children during those times when you're working. could be a much more even balance. Even under the best case scenarios, a four-day work week isn't going to be a panacea for American work culture. It could reduce the amount of people feeling burned out at work and lead to better mental health at home lives. Maybe it gives working parents an extra day to stay home with their children. But Angela Garbus, author of Essential Labor, points out that at the end of the day, it's just an extra eight hours. I mean, certainly a four-day work week would give people more flexibility. I think that's undeniable. But we're we're talking about eight hours here, right? And I will say that that sort of logistical calculus, which if I had known that parenting would come the amount of time that I would spend doing that sort of logistical scheduling calculus, I may not have had children, right? (laughs) Even if we had a four-day work week, there's no guarantee that would address pressing issues related to jobs like the lack of affordable childcare in America or work being tied to health insurance and other benefits. But Anne Helen Peterson has some ideas about what an ideal future of work could actually look like. My ideal future of work is one in which we decouple health insurance from employment so people aren't stuck in jobs that are bad just generally or are struggling to put together enough money to cover premiums. Like We make that part of the social safety net. And we also (laughs) institute infrastructure for childcare and elder care so that people aren't feeling like they're constantly under duress and trying to find solutions to their elder care and childcare problems. We may or may not have a universal basic income in order to respond to the fact that a lot of these essential frontline worker jobs have become automated, right? Like the fact that at the grocery store, there are fewer and fewer people with those high paying salary jobs. The fact that at Target, there's usually two lines open now and 10 automated checkouts. I also think we have better worker protections just generally. The labor laws expand to account for the freelancification of the labor force, which is an ongoing trend that we're seeing that's just going to intensify because places don't want to have full-time employees anymore. They want to have contract labor. But Anne is also realistic about how rarely we update our labor laws in America. I think that there is very little willingness to protect our existing labor protections, let alone to expand or modify them to apply to the way that work is organized now, right? Like we have not updated our labor laws in any meaningful way. The state of California has tried, like their freelance law is like trying, but it actually kind of backfires. Like we need a lot of really smart people (laughs) figuring out how do we actually protect work the way work is performed now. But we are currently a nation that doesn't really change, right? We can we can fund built infrastructure, but we're not interested in innovation or anything approximating the sort of like 
deft legislation that's going on in a place like the EU. I think companies and competitive industries are going to be forced to change. And that's why you see the most interesting innovations in terms of four-day work week, in terms of flex, all of these things happening in the tech industry because they know that they have to be competitive for talent. So a four-day work week may be closer for workers in the tech industry or other white-collar jobs than it is for positions like childcare workers or teachers, which is why Angela Garbus stresses that a world where everyone works only four days a week will require changing how we as a culture think about work. All work is work. All work, whether it's, you know, happens in an office and you're moving money around or you're engineering software, right? Or if you're baking bread or if you're cleaning toilets, if you're stocking shelves, like it's all work. And people want to work. People want to feel useful, right? I think some people work a job so that they can, you know, noodle on their guitar in their free time. Some people work so they can take three months off and travel, right? Like, I think it's just, it's important that like, no work is more important than other work. And that includes the work that happens in the home. That includes the work of taking care of people. It's the work of cleaning your home and keeping a household running. I really want to push people to think about how, what their lives would be like if they didn't have those things and to see that as work and to start to really begin to value it financially and culturally. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now it's time for Charlotte Lockhart to join us for a round of trivia about work and culture. All right, here we go. What U.S. president, who was also a Civil War general, was the first to implement an eight-hour workday for government employees? Oh, I don't know. That's a great, tell me. It's a good one, right? Ulysses Grant. Okay. Okay. Question two. In 2000, this European country mandated a 35-hour work week in order to reduce unemployment. Yes. France. Correct. Nailed it. Yes. Now, so interestingly about that for your listeners, so France did that, um, and it hasn't been a huge success for them. And the reason why is that just mandating a reduction in time um, doesn't mean that people are going to focus on productivity. So they had some really great benefits when they first brought it out, but then it's just evened out to being the new normal. And so that's why when, when we're working with businesses, we're always saying, you know, these are the things, the tools you need to do to ensure that you don't settle into a new normal and that, you, that productivity remains at the core of what you're trying to achieve. Right. Otherwise, it's just you've subtracted five hours and you haven't gained anything. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Question three. Before their breakout roles in the American version of the workplace sitcom, The Office, four of the cast members, John Krasinski, Mindy Kaling, Angela Kinsey, and Ellie Kemper, spent time interning for what late night talk show host? We're looking for a late night talk show host. I'm going to have to pass. See, it's American TV. Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien. Okay. Yes. 
Yes, uh, yes. I sorry. I, I I did watch the British version of that one. I haven't seen the American. <laughs> That's don't worry about it. They're very similar. All right. I worry about this for you. This question again, a little American culture centric. Ellie Kemper, who was in the office in America's, her high school drama teacher's name was John Hamm, who is the star of what Emmy Award winning workplace drama that focuses on New York advertising executives? Do you know that show? Uh, Mad Men. Correct. Nailed it. Good guess. Boom. Yeah. And how's that for a crazy amount of work that they did in that? Yeah, exactly. They All they did was work. All right. Last question. This is a good one. What American company is the largest private employer in the world? What American company is the largest private employer in the world? Oh, I am going to say American company, largest private employer in the world. I don't know. Because, of course, so many companies use other ways of employing people. Correct. Yeah. I don't know. Tell me. what's Who is it? Uh, you're going to kick yourself. Walmart. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, that round may have been a little unfair. I bet if we'd centered the questions around New Zealand pop culture, Charlotte would have aced it. Thank you to Charlotte Lockhart for joining us for trivia and for sharing her expertise about a four-day work week. And thanks to Anne Helen Peterson and Angela Garbus for helping us rethink our work culture. To me, it feels like there's little downside to a four-day work week. It may not fix every problem in the workplace, but it's definitely a start. And why should we all be sticking to a work standard that was created nearly a century ago? What about you? How many hours are you working each week? What would you do if you were able to work fewer hours for the same salary? Let me know by tweeting me at Chris C-I-L-L-I-Z-Z-A. If you're liking our show, please share it with your friends and make sure you rate, review, and subscribe as well. Next time on Downside Up, what if we couldn't buy anything on credit? So people often had access to credit in history that access to credit wasn't always on great terms or particularly fair. And the question of who has access to fair credit, who has access to credit that's not extractive or exploitative, that doesn't trap them in poverty, but that allows them to gain wealth or improve their world, that's often the real question. Downside Up is hosted by me, Chris Eliza. It's a production of CNN in collaboration with Pod People. At CNN, our producer is Lori Galaretta, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Alexander McCall leads audience strategy for the show. Tamika Balance Kalasny is our production manager, and Jameis Andrust and Nicole Pesaru designed our artwork. The team from Pod People includes Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, John Hammontree, Madison Lusby, Regina Deheer, and Morgan Foose. Theme and original music composed by Casey Holford. Additional music came from Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to Lindsay Abrams, Fuzz Hogan, Drew Shankman, Lisa Namoro, John Dianora, Katie Hinman, Robert Mathers, and Serena Saint. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 